Good morning, once again. You know, there are occasions in life that you look at the situation and you just say to yourself, wow, it is just so obvious how God loves us. Look at the great gifts that he gives us, and you say, how can anybody doubt that there is a good God in heaven? And of course, one of those days is today, the start of the football season. <laughs> Even for Jets fans. Now, I know there's a lot of young men in our um, congregation here that play football. Uh, I know Charlie, my assumed sons, Jalen and Jeremiah. And it's funny to see the commitment that it takes from these young men, even at this level, to play football. Because every time you talk to them, I'll talk to Jeremiah and I'll say, hey, what's your weight up to? And he'll say, oh, I'm up to 137, but I'm shooting for 140. And I'll check with him a few months later. I'm, I'm at 140, but I'm shooting for 143. You ask him, hey, what's your time in the 40? And he tells you, and he says, but I want to get a little faster. And then you ask him again, I want to get a little faster. What are you bench pressing? Oh, I'm bench pressing so much, but I want to do five pounds more. And then he gets there and he says, I want to do five pounds more. And he's always changing the goal. He's always working to be better and better and better. And that's what it takes if you want to be a successful football player. But we're going to see today that Paul says the same should go for our spiritual walk. Because as those called to live lives of holiness in order to shine the light of God's love and salvation into a dark world, here's the question. Do we ever feel satisfied with how bright our light is? Do we ever, practically speaking, feel as if we've achieved our goal? We've done enough. We believe enough. We've, we've reached the peak of what God calls us to. We're going to see Paul today encourage the Thessalonian church to strive to be what God calls them to, but to keep going, to do it more and more, to always seek to be more of what God calls them to be and to do more of what God calls them to do. And I hope today that we are encouraged to do the same. He says this in 1 Thessalonians 4.1, he says, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Paul starts here with this finally. Have you ever noticed how far from the end of some of his letters Paul says finally? Like he says finally and sometimes there's still like chapters to go. Well, I'm going to tell you why because finally is a really bad translation. The word means the rest. It, it signals the rest of what Paul wants to say and usually it means he's starting the application. He'll talk about Jesus in the first half of the letter then give application for what it all means. And in this letter, Paul has commended the church in Thessalonica on what a great example they are to the rest of the believers around them. He compliments them for how readily they received his word as the word of God and not man. He tells them how highly Timothy speaks to them. Hey, Timothy came to you and you were exemplary in both faith and love. He says to the Thessalonians, you are a good church. You are all good followers of Christ. You have great faith. You show forth Christ's love. You really respond to the preaching of the word. And then we get to this finally. He says, well, here's the rest of what I want to say, okay? You guys are great. But here's what's left to say. And he starts by saying, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus. So the rest of what he wants to say, he both asks and urges the Thessalonians to do here. And that word urge, it means to entreat. He basically says, okay, I'm going to ask you this. No, guys. I'm begging you. And then he says, as you received from us. Now, who is the us? 
Well, it's the same we at the beginning of this chapter that are begging something of the Thessalonians. We find out in the opening verse of the letter where Paul opens this way. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. You know, for some reason, in a lot of Paul's letters, he co-writes them with somebody else. And we just gloss over that, right? Because they're the letters of Paul. But it wasn't uncommon then for people combined to write a letter to a church or to somebody else. And here, these three men are writing this letter to this church. Three men who are preachers of the gospel. I mean, obviously, Paul is an apostle. Silvanus and Timothy are preachers of the apostolic message. And it's this message, Paul says, that the church had so gladly received and was living out so wonderfully. So it's these three men who are asking and treating the church here. That as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you were doing, that you do so more and more. So I just want you to notice, these guys aren't just preachers of the gospel. They are preachers of the gospel with a purpose. Their purpose is that the hearers who hear them preach would know how they ought to walk. Their purpose for preaching is that the church would hear directly from God what pleases him. And note, this is what, the Paul said, what Paul says this church had already received from him. They had heard these men preach. They've read through the first half of the letter by this point, and they know, hey, we are doing all of this really well. They know that God is exhorting them through what these men have already said. You receive from us, Paul said, how you ought to walk. You receive from us how to please God. And Paul, I'm sure with great joy in his heart, was able to say to this church, and you're doing it. You are walking in a manner pleasing to God. Because he says, just as you are doing, guys, you are doing it. You heard from us what God wants from you, and you're giving it to him. So it's not the doing here that Paul and Timothy and Silvanus are asking and begging the church to do. No, he says you're already doing it. Instead, the request here, what he's begging for, the rest of what Paul has to say is that the hearers of his message who accepted the gospel as the word of God and were living it out would do so more and more. He says, just as you were doing, he says, you, you are all walking in a manner pleasing to God. You've heeded our words. You've, you've heard the gospel. You know it was from God. And with great joy in my heart, as a pastor, I can say so many of you are walking in a manner so pleasing to God. So many of you do engage your minds and your hearts in prayer and the word of God. So many of you live out the love of Christ. So many of you live out great lives of faith. MCC, you're already doing this. You genuinely seek to do what God calls you to do, to be what God calls you to be so that you can be pleasing to him. Thank God you do. Because you realize that those of us that preach from his pulpit, what we preach is not ourselves. We preach Jesus Christ. So what we ask of you, what we urge you to do is in the name of the Lord Jesus, we preach his word. We preach how he says you ought to walk. What he says pleases him. And think about the teaching team is covered this summer. We've already talked about what it means to be the church, and we're going to finish that up next week. I'm back to Church Sunday. We've talked about our responsibility as the all of us together as a church and about our responsibility, each of us individually who are part of the church. Since the beginning of June, we've talked about this. We've covered the Great Commission, how we as the church are to go and bring people into the community of faith and make them disciples of Christ. And we saw to do that, we need to be disciples of Christ. And then we talked about the cost of discipleship. How cheap grace is just all too common in American churches. And that each of us and all of us together need to be willing to sacrifice for Christ who has called us to be his disciples. 
We each need to take responsibility for ourselves in this. We spent two weeks on spiritual gifts. Talk about how every member of the church is gifted. You're already gifted by God and called to use your gifts so that we can be the church. We talked about how we find our purpose in Christ. How we discover what God has in store for us and we saw. We do that by looking at where he's already placed us at what we're already doing. We need to do what we already do to the glory of God. Then we saw the mission of a church to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. How God's plan from eternity past was for his church to fill the earth with disciples of Jesus Christ. And we say how God gives us his authority and his power to do just that, to carry out the Great Commission, to preach the gospel of repentance and the forgiveness of sins in the name of Christ. How he does this for those who are of a humble and contrite heart, remember we saw from Isaiah, those who worship him and him alone instead of opposing him and his will. And we saw that we carry out our calling in the world as Christians by not being of the world. We show forth Christ in the world by being obviously different from them. And then we discussed faith. How true faith will always lead to faithfulness to God. Our faith is trusting God that will lead to action. And how in order to trust God that way, we need to learn to trust ourselves, our ways, our wills, less and less. We saw how worship isn't something we do when we come here together on Sunday mornings. Worship is a lifestyle we live unto God. It is exalting God in our lives by constantly pushing ourselves and our wants and our ways further down before him. And of course, we saw repeatedly how we need to know God from his word. And we have to be on our knees before him in prayer. How we have to humbly serve his church, because we saw this is how we grow in our faith. This is how we carry out our calling. This is how we become disciples so we can make disciples. And like Paul, I say to you, you're already doing this. You are all taking very seriously your responsibility for your discipleship, and you are doing all of these things, learning your Bible, serving, praying, trusting God, and praise God. This is why our church is so great. That's why I love coming here on Sunday mornings. Praise God. We're already doing it. But let's do it more and more. MCC, as you receive from us, the teaching team, how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are already doing, do so more and more. I ask of you. I beg of you. Paul says that the Thessalonian church is already doing this to do so more and more. It literally says to abound in this more. It could be to excel in this more, to increase in this more, to overflow with this more. Paul says, I, you guys are already walking in a manner pleasing to God. Now excel at it. Excel at it. Now increase what you're doing. Overflow with a life pleasing to God. And then do it more. Why? For you know what instructions we gave to you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. So Paul again is sure to clarify that what these men preached was not of themselves. They weren't the source. They didn't have an agenda. What they gave to the church, what they preached, what they exhorted, what they taught, what they asked and begged of the church, it came through Jesus Christ. They preached Christ and him alone. And why did they do it? They wanted the church to know how to walk and live pleasing to God. They wanted them to know that right from Jesus. And now they want them to excel 
and do that more and more because they say God wants them to be sanctified. Paul says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. This is the will of God for us, our sanctification, our becoming more and more holy. I mean, how many times have you heard a brother, never mind, how many times have you, in any given situation, said to yourself, I just wish I knew what God's will was. But we know what God's will is. The Bible's clear on God's will for us. God's will is our sanctification. That's always his will. No matter what else he commands of us, no matter what our circumstances are, when things are great and we are on the mountaintop of our faith, God wants us to be holy. When we're in the valley, when we don't understand why God does the things that he does, why he allows circumstances to be what they are, God wants us to be sanctified through it. God wants us holy unto him. He wants us set apart. To not be of the world that we live in, but to be set apart so Jesus can shine forth in our lives. He wants us to be holy so his holiness is evident through our manner of living. This is what God has always wanted. This is the purpose of the Old Testament law. That's why God told Israel what they had to wear, what they could eat and couldn't eat, how they had to look, how they had to shave. It was all about what they did that the nations didn't do and what the nations did that they didn't do. And now we, as the church, we are to be set apart in the same way unto God so that we can love like him so the world can know his love. So we can be merciful so the world can see his mercy. So we can forgive like him so the world can see his forgiveness. We want to go out and share the gospel, right? I mean, should we tell the world who Jesus is and what he's done for us? Absolutely. That's why we're here. Will it have any effect if we are not holy? we are not set apart unto God? No. Will those we so desperately want to bring Jesus to, for them to believe and be saved, if we are no different from them, will they want it? No. And remember, it doesn't mean our circumstances are different. It doesn't mean we have it any better in the world. In fact, we probably won't. See, the very idea is that the only difference between us and them is the biggest difference. It's Jesus Christ. So that even in the same circumstances, even when we suffer, we are completely different from them because we know Jesus. And we can never forget how important, how necessary our personal holiness is to our personal evangelism. If we neglect our own holiness, we are neglecting to give the world a reason to care what we have to say. We are to be holy like God is holy. So the world will know that he is holy, that he is set apart, that he is completely different from anyone or anything they have ever seen or ever known. And that is why, for those who are already living lives pleasing to God, for those of you who know how you ought to walk in light of God's saving grace, you need to do it more and more and more. More and more. That is sanctification. This is God's will for us. When I first came here, and man, was I desperate to get on the teaching team. I wanted to preach so bad. I was sitting in the back there itching. I gotta preach. I was asked by a previous pastor, I said, well, let me ask you a question. What's your goal when you preach? And without hesitation, I said, sanctification. I said, I preach so that the saints of God may grow more and more holy, more and more like him in his power. That is my goal when I preach. And that's why you don't often hear me do a seeker-sensitive mes uh, message, right? 
Because my job as a pastor, what God has called me as a shepherd to do, it isn't primarily to go find other sheep. It isn't to tickle the ears of other sheep. It's to take care of the sheep I have. My job as a pastor is to protect the flock that God has graciously given into my care, to protect you from the lies of the devil, to protect you from sin, to protect you from the ways of the world, to love you and to bring the truth of God to you week after week. Because i got to be honest with you all, I don't focus on growing our church numerically. You know why? Because if we are all doing our part, God is going to do that through us anyway. I want to grow our church spiritually, me included. I want us to grow in holiness together, in faithfulness to God together. I want to trust him together more. And that's why I've preached the sermons I've preached over this summer. Listen, I don't come out here and try to beat you all over the head week after week. Honestly, that's not my goal, I promise. It's not my goal to come out here and say, take responsibility, take responsibility. I'm just telling you what God wants from you. As I said, so many of you do read your Bibles and pray and serve. I know firsthand that so many of you love with a Christ-like love. But Paul says, holiness unto our God is God's will. And if we want to be in God's will, we need to take what we're doing and we need to increase that. And then do it some more. And yeah, while the same truth does call some people out on what they're not doing and hopefully convicts them to uh, do it, it calls the rest of us to do what we're already doing, but to excel at it, to abound for the cause of Christ, because that is God's will for us. That is how we are sanctified. Listen, we never arrive in this life, ever. The football player who thinks he's strong enough, fast enough, he's not going to be any good. We never get to the point in this life where we are holy enough. We never get to the point where we can say, oh, I'm doing enough. Never get to the point where we can say, no, my faith is strong enough. Oh, and my faithfulness to God, it can't get any better. No, we've already seen we can always bow ourselves more and more before our exalted Lord so that he would be exalted in our own lives. So too, we can always grow in holiness. We can always show more of Jesus to the world. And that's sanctification. That's growing in holiness. You know, broadly speaking, we tend to break down our, our salvation into three stages, right? And none of these words mean anything to unbelievers, by the way, so never, ever use them, okay? We, we tend to talk about our justification, our sanctification, and our glorification, because salvation is a process. So when we say, yeah, I'm saved, which, by the way, that word means nothing to an unbeliever either. I, I don't suggest using that one. But we say, I'm saved, we're talking about our justification, we're talking about that moment when the Spirit did a work in our hearts and made us new creatures and we repented of our sin and placed our faith in Jesus Christ as Savior. Oh, what a day. When we did that, we were saved. And we talk about yet being saved, our final salvation, when Christ comes again and we see him face to face and he glorifies us and we are with him physically forever. What a day that'll be. But then there's the rest of it what we tend to call our Christian walk, right? The how of our lives in the here and now. That's our sanctification. This is our always being saved. We are always being saved. And this salvation is the only thing we can affect now. And God wants to affect it in us so he can save souls through us. The starting line is justification because of what Christ did. The finish line is when he comes again. 
when we're in his presence. The rest is the race that we have to run in between the starting and finish line. And those two, the start and the finish, that is exclusively God's work. You don't get off the starting line without a sovereign work of God in your heart. And the finish line is yet to appear because Christ is going to bring it with him when he comes. But once we are off the starting line, we need to run. We need to run. We need to push ourselves and each other towards the finish. We have a responsibility to do so because sanctification is our responsibility. But God is so good that it's also his work. And Paul says in Philippians 2, he says, Therefore, my beloved, if you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God calls us to run a race, and we have to spend our lives running it because God gives us the power to do it. He gives us the want to and the how to. He gives us his Holy Spirit, the spirit of holiness. It's the holiness we are called to, and it is his power that keeps us running the race. But we still need to run it. This is the will of God, our sanctification. And then Paul puts this in practical terms. Look what he says. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Why does Paul bring this to sexual immorality? Well, Sexual morality in the Bible is often used as a metaphor for any sin. Us sinning against God is us being unfaithful to our bridegroom. But the Bible holds up sexual immorality as an example, as the superlative example of the sin of the human heart, of our sin against God. You need to understand the culture into which Paul was writing. I mean, the Greco-Roman culture was in... Thessalonica for hundreds of years. And under Roman law at this time, you know, men were legally, legally entitled to have concubines and to patronize prostitutes. Legally. Diomosthenes wrote this, a Greek. He said, mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of our person, but wives to bear us legitimate children. And in the first century pagan society, this was normal. Understand, the Jewish and then the Christian idea of you shall not commit adultery was very foreign to the rest of the world. But God called us to be set apart from the world. That's why he commanded, you shall not commit adultery. And as we know, the seventh commandment goes way beyond just a physical act. As Jesus said in Matthew 5, you have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. He is talking about sanctification here, about becoming holy. And we see here, sexual immorality, like adultery, is always first a matter of the heart. Adulterers stray in their hearts long before they stray in the body. Inappropriate relationships will always first cross a line in your heart. Last week, a well-known pastor down in Texas, someone who I actually admired, broke my heart. He was suspended from his church because he was DMing. I think that's an online thing, right? DMing a woman in his congregation. The elders saw it and said, this is inappropriate. See, we see even today, 
2,000 years after Paul wrote these words, sexual immorality is still pretty much a superlative example of the sin of the human heart. And Paul is talking about holiness, being set apart, set apart unto God, but being set apart from the world. And the world in Paul's day said sexual immorality was fine. They wouldn't even define it as immorality. All this stuff is fine. But Jesus says no. And sanctification is becoming more and more aligned with Jesus and less and less with the world. So what Paul was saying basically is do not be like the world, but be like Jesus who we preached. And we need to heed that because, listen, there are plenty of things in our culture that for some reason somehow are just fine. Plenty of immoral things that are not considered immoral by the world. Plenty of sinful things that are not only accepted, but champions. And for us, unfortunately, not doing these things, especially if you speak against them. Oh, that's wrong. Now all of a sudden we're in immorality here. And then not being like the world is going to make you an outcast. There's something wrong with people who don't embrace what our society says is good. That's what holiness is about. Being set apart from the world. Being set apart unto God. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. And here we get to, this is actually a pretty controversial verse of the Bible here, because people have wondered at this for thousands of years, argued over for thousands of years what this means, how to control his own body. Because what it literally says here is that each one of you have to acquire your own vessel in holiness and honor. What does that mean? This led to interpretations from Paul saying, hey, get married, possess your spouse, your vessel in holiness, and that will avoid sexual immorality. From that all the way to people saying, no, no, no. Paul's idea of the vessel is really the male reproductive organ. He's telling the Thessalonians, hey, guys, keep it under control. I don't think either of those are right. So when Paul uses the word vessel, which he uses in his letters often, he's referring to a person in reference to how they have been made by God. Like when he speaks in Romans 9, how some are made vessels of wrath and some vessels of mercy, some vessels for honorable use, some vessels for dishonorable use. Like when he tells Timothy in his final letter, he says, now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, this is sanctification, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. And of course, the master of the house is Christ. Keeping ourselves from dishonorable things is our holiness. And we see that those who are vessels for honorable use are those who are set apart as holy, who are sanctified. So here in 1 Thessalonians 4, this holiness it's the same word as sanctification. It's our setting, our being set apart from the world and unto God. Paul was saying the same thing here. He says to Timothy, we all need to get our vessels under control. We need to be able to control ourselves, our bodies, our eyes, our thoughts. Because we belong to God. We are in his possession. And we need to control ourselves, control our vessels in order to be sanctified unto God. We cannot let our vessels, which were created as vessels of mercy, which were created as vessels for honorable use, we cannot let this belong to the ways of the world. Can't give in to the sins of the heart. 
We can't bow to the lust of the flesh. That's not who we are. That's not what God made us. He made us into something new, and he made us into something holy, and he has called us to holiness. See, Paul is drawing a contrast between us and the world. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. See, we're not to be like the world. We're not to be like those in the world who don't know God. Whether we are first century Thessalonians who live in a society that actually advocates for adultery, or we live in 21st century America, in a society that says there's absolutely nothing wrong with sex before marriage or homosexuality or pornography. We're not like them. And the more sanctified we are, the less like the world we become. And this is the difference between us and the world. This is why Paul uses sexual immorality as the point of departure. He does this often, like in Romans, where he says, for although they knew God, unbelievers he's talking about, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And this is what the world does. This is the same passion of lust. This is to be expected, to be expected of those that don't know God. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, and each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. And this is a matter of how unlike the world we are, in fact. We know what kind of vessels we are. We know what we were made for. But how are our vessels being used? How unlike the world are we in practice? Can we control ourselves any better than them when sin comes calling? Because understand, what we know is wrong and what we don't do are very often two different things. Knowing what God said is different than doing what God said. Knowing what God said not to do is very often different from what we don't do. Knowing we should be set apart unto God doesn't mean that we are. Knowing that we are called to be holy doesn't mean we pursue holiness. Knowing that we are not supposed to be like the world doesn't keep us from acting like them or speaking like them or thinking like them or spending our time like them or prioritizing like they do or having a similar browser history. What we know has to affect what we do. We know what the world denies, right? They, they deny the truth about God. They push it way down so they can claim ignorance. And they just have plausible deniability to go on. Well, if we're no different than them indeed, then we're doing the same thing. And remember, the heart strays before the body does. The body follows the heart. And Jesus tells us our heart follows what we treasure. He also tells us our eyes will always be on our treasure. So the heart follows the eyes and the body follows the heart, and now we see why sexual immorality is used as an example of sin. And all of this tells us two things. Number one, the outward reflects the inward. But number two, the outward affects the inward. What we are on the inside is revealed for what we do on the outside. But brothers and sisters, what we do on the outside has an effect on who we are on the inside. What we do matters. 
And there's more to it than even that, Paul says. Because what we do, how sanctified we are, whether we are holy or not, it affects more than just us. Look at what he says altogether. He says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Look what Paul says here. He says, God's will is your sanctification. And then he qualifies this when he says, it means we abstain from sexual immorality. It means we have self-control. And it means we are not like the world does not know God. And these are all saying pretty much the same thing, but in different ways, right? These are the same call to holiness. But he adds something else. He adds a fourth thing. Sanctification means that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. This is also saying the same thing. And some say Paul here is talking about sexual immorality against another Christian. This is how some people read this. As if Paul was saying, listen, if you're going to commit an immoral act, don't do it. But if you have to, do it with an unbeliever. Does that make sense? Some say Paul's, no, no, he's addressing some specific immorality going on in this church. There must have been immorality going on here, and he's correcting that. But number one, I've never seen Paul have a problem just coming out and saying what he means. But he's speaking to the same people. He just said, guys, you are great. You are exemplary. You are an example to other believers. Timothy says, you guys are rocking it. This is great. And he says, keep doing more of what you're doing. I don't think there was sexual immorality going on there. I think Paul clarifies what he means in the next verse. He says, be sanctified. Be holy, brothers and sisters, because that is God's will. And this means that we do not commit sexual immorality. It means that we have self-control. It means that we are not like the world that does not know God. And it means that we do not transgress a brother or sister in this matter. Because see, the matter isn't sexual immorality. The matter is the holiness. He says, do not wrong each other in this matter. Because look what he says. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Paul switches from you to us. And he does it with a purpose. Paul says here in this section, I'm asking each of you, I'm begging you guys. Just like each of you heard the word from me and Timothy and Sylvanus in light of each of that. Each of you, walk in a matter pleasing to God and then just do it more. Excel at it. Because God wants you to be holy. He's calling you to sanctification. And that means, guys, you all got to abstain from sexual immorality in your minds, your hearts, and with your bodies. You need self-control to keep your minds, hearts, and bodies holy unto God. Don't be like the world, guys, because you've been set apart unto God and you can't wrong your brother or sister in this matter of your personal holiness. Paul's saying God wants each of you to be holy because God wants us to be holy. You guys take responsibility for your sanctification, he's saying. You pursue personal holiness because God has called all of us together, the church of God, not to impurity, but to holiness. This isn't just about each of us. This is about all of us. And my personal holiness, whether I am seeking it and seeking God, or whether I'm neglecting that, that affects all of you. Your personal holiness, whether you are different from the world or you are just like the world, affects us all. My personal holiness, as part of God's church, it is not a personal matter. 
We can't write this off to, oh, that's between them and God, because it isn't. It's between me and our God and all of you. We are all one in Christ. As Paul says later on in Romans, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. See, God calls us to be holy. His will is our sanctification. And look what he says. He says, therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And here's where we need to lead with our hearts, because God has changed who we are on the inside. Praise him for that. And he now calls us to be that on the outside, to live that out more and more, to be what he has made us, holy unto him more and more. And Paul says, this is why he gives you his Holy Spirit. And the gives here, it, it, he's not talking about something God did once. He's not talking about our justification, okay? He's still talking about our sanctification. This is talking about what God is doing, still doing. Something that happens and happens and happens. And that is that God gives us his Holy Spirit to make us holy. Remember, our sanctification is God's work. He works in us by his Spirit. And he wants us to do this more and more. And Paul says, don't disregard that because he has given you his spirit. He gives you his spirit so that we can be more saved, not in the sense of justification, but precisely so we can be more and more and more saved, more and more holy. So we need more of God's spirit. We need him to work in us and make us holy even as he is holy. But like I said, we have a responsibility to be holy too. We have to take responsibility for this. I know, well, Lee, which is it? is it? Is it us or is it God? The answer is yes. We need to take responsibility for our holiness and we need more of God's spirit. And God's spirit works in us through his word, reading his word, seeking his word, hearing the word preached. The spirit of holiness is also the spirit of truth. God's spirit works in us through prayer. Jesus said the father gives the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. And I think that we have not because we ask not. And see, these very simple means of grace can change our hearts more and more for God and make us more holy unto him so that we can outwardly be more and more holy because the outward always reflects the inward. As I said, the outward always affects the inward. So just thinking about our holiness for a minute and what it means, how we are set apart unto God, how we are supposed to be set apart from the world, how his will is for us to be holy, and how this affects each other, we need to think very carefully about what we do. So let me ask you, where are our eyes? Are they on the world or are they on God? I mean, very practically speaking, what is it that we look at? Do we use our eyes in a worldly way to look upon what the world says is okay? Or do we consider our eyes holy unto God? And this is more important than you might think. So let me tell you something. We can change our minds. God can change our hearts. You can't unsee something. That stays with you. Is what we're seeing holy unto God. Because we need to set our eyes more and more on the holy. So if our eye is bad, the whole body is full of darkness. Go read Matthew 6 later. Where are our minds? 
Are our minds on the things of God or on the things of the world? Practically speaking, what do we intentionally fill our minds with? The same things the world does or the things of God? And once again, I'll give the same disclaimer I always do. Listen, television, movies, novels, plays, social media, none of that is sinful, okay? It can be, but it's not inherently sinful. I'm not saying give any of that up. My question is, what are you filling your mind with? Do you get to the end of the average day having spent four hours filling your mind with those things and only two hours of the things of God? And I say that knowing that for most of us, the ratio is probably far less holy than that, isn't it? We need to fill our minds with the things of God more and more. A little more this week, and then next week do it some more. How about all the other responsibilities we take on? How often are our minds on those things and not on the things of God? Well, I'll speak from experience. Most of the time. That's why we're all so darn anxious in this country, isn't it? And I understand we all have to work. It wouldn't be responsible or very Christian to neglect our responsibilities. That's not what I'm saying. My question is, where are our minds? Because if we take on responsibilities that keep our minds off of God, we need to give those up and trust God to provide. Go read Matthew 6 later. And we need to realize where our eyes go and our minds go, our heart will go. Always. And where our eyes and our minds go, our hearts go, and where our hearts go, our actions will go more and more. So basically, we have two directions we can go. Two directions. We can go toward being set apart for God and from the world or the other way. We know what God's will is. We know this isn't just a matter between me and God. So brothers and sisters, with our summer at an end now, our topical preaching series coming to an end next week, I'm asking you all, please consider everything God has said to us this summer as a church. Because what we each decide is what we will all be. What we each decide will decide what we all do. We each need to decide whether we will all be set apart unto God as a church or not. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Finally then, Montclair Community Church, I ask you and I beg you, just as you know how you ought to walk, just as you know how to please God, just as you are already doing, do so more and more. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father. Lord, I come before you this morning knowing myself that this is a much easier sermon to preach than to live. And God, I ask you for myself and the sake 
of my church family, Lord. Take the things from my heart that are not of you, Lord. Turn my eyes to Jesus. Turn my heart to Jesus more and more. Turn my thoughts to Jesus more and more. It's my prayer for everyone here, God, that we as a church would turn our eyes and our minds and our hearts to Jesus more and more, that we may grow together in holiness, that we may be more of what you call us to be, Lord, that we may do what you call us to as a church, knowing, Lord, that you will do this work in us by the Holy Spirit, God, that you give us the power to do this, that you give us the want to, to do this. And God, it is so often in our lives that we really, really want to want to, God. That's because our eyes are on the world. It's because our hearts aren't for you. Take a hold of us, God. Take a hold of these vessels that were created for honorable use, God. And fill us with your spirit. That we may walk in a manner pleasing to you. So we can show the world there is a God. There is a God who loves. There is a God who saves. That there is a God who came took on flesh and took on my sin and took the punishment he did that for us that we may live unto you Lord help us help us to shine ever brighter help us be a beacon in a dark world God there are people out there who do not know you and need to know you Lord we need to live lives of holiness so they can see you that they can know you. So that when we tell them what Jesus has done for us, that they can see us and they can want that too. So work in each of our hearts today, I pray. Lord, we honor you. We want to do it more and more. We exalt you. And we want to do it more and more. We glorify you. And we want to do it more and more. God, we love you. We want to do that so desperately, more and more. So work in us, God. We lay ourselves down at the cross of Christ. Here we are. Do with us what you will. We pray this in the mighty, all-powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.